painful. It's too painful being a public profile. It's too painful trying to lead hundreds of people in 22 countries around the world. It's too painful um, to trust people and be betrayed. And I thought, I had sort of worked it out. I thought I could just take my foot off the gas and nobody would really know. And then I was like weeping and I said, but Jesus would know. Jesus would know that I stopped pressing. Jesus would know that I took my foot off the gas. Jesus would know that I was no longer straining forward. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Leadership Conversations with Nikki Gumbel. It's Shayla here. Nikki is joined today by his wonderful wife, Pippa, as they share a conversation with Christine Kane. Christine is a sought-after international speaker, author, and activist, and personally, I really admire her. Every time I hear Christine speak, I leave convicted and challenged to live a life fully devoted to Christ. And Nikki has a few things to share about her as well, so I'll let him do the rest of the introduction in a moment. But before I hand it off, we do want to give fair warning that parts of Christine's story are very tragic and might be troubling to some of you listening. In the interview, Christine speaks honestly about issues related to sexual abuse, rape, abandonment, and sex trafficking. And although she speaks with such hope and optimism, if any of these issues are distressing for you to hear about, I encourage you to skip to the 17-minute mark of the interview to hear the remainder of the conversation. And with that said, I'll hand it off to Nikki and Pippa to introduce Christine. We are delighted to be here with Christine Kane, a mm. wonderful, wonderful friend. Mm. Um, Christine's married to Nick. They've got two daughters, aged 19 and 15. Um, and she is um, a global phenomenon, uh, an international speaker, um, uh, founder together with her husband, Nick, of the A21 campaign, which is a global anti-human trafficking organization and Propel Women, an organization designed to activate women to fulfill their God-given passion, purpose, and potential. She's the author of several books, and we've just got two here to, to we wave around. We have more in our house. We have more in our, in our house, but unashamed mm, and uh, undaunted, but there are lots more, unstoppable, and various others. But the most important thing is she is a wonderful, wonderful person, and uh, mm. this amazing family, and we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, so, Pips, it's over to you. First question. Mm. Can we go back to the beginning, Chris? Can we go back to conception? Can we go back to what happened when you were, before you were, and when you <laughs> began, as it were? We're going to take this in a, in, a, in a chronological order, starting from the very, very beginning. beginning. Wow, this is going to be a long time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 55 this year, so yeah. I can see this is going to well, be We're starting long. with minus nine months. <laughs> Nikki and Pippa, I'm so honoured to be with you all. Uh, we're friends. It makes this so much easier when you truly are friends with um, with who you're talking to. Well, you know, at 33, uh, Nikki and Pippa, I have to go to 33 to go back to yeah. conception because I thought one narrative about my life for 33 years and then at 33 I found out quite shockingly um, that I wasn't who I thought I was. I found out that I had been left in a hospital unnamed and unwanted when I was born and that I was adopted a couple of weeks later by my parents who were Greek immigrants from Alexandria in Egypt. I had wonderful parents but they were very frightened about telling us that part of our story. And I think things were very different years ago. The adoptions in Australia were all closed adoptions. I think they feared that we would um, 
perhaps be confused about our identity and, and feel shame and guilt. And I think they did it to protect us. It wasn't a, um, it, it, I don't think it was the best choice, but it was uh, the best they knew how to do at that time. So all I know about that period of my life before um, I entered the planet was that I know that my biological mother was a 23-year-old single woman, a Greek immigrant woman, and I could just only imagine her trauma um, mm. to be a single woman immigrant in Australia and pregnant in 1966. It was not like it is today. Um, she would have been so ostracised, so marginalised. I am so grateful that the woman had courage to birth me. I mean, I mean, that is just miraculous. Mm. She could have had taken any other course of action. So um, I, I don't know her, but I will forever honour her because she went through extreme suffering. Um, just from the documents that I read, she lived in immigrant housing in Redfern in Sydney, Australia, which was just uh, in a very, uh, you know, group housing and just went herself to the hospital, had a 36-hour um, um, really quite horrific labor, full blood transfusion. I mean, just everything. So she went through so much. Um, so I kind of think there was a fight for my life right from the very beginning. And um, that's kind of where, where I, I did enter the earth with a bang. And it seems like the Lord uh, has allowed that to be the story of my life. <laughs> yeah. But okay, t tell us about the moment that you found out, because for the first I was. You were two weeks short of your thirty third birthday, weren't you? When you yes, found out? it was two weeks out. I was, um, and my brother George called me because he had got the letter from the government to say that he had been adopted. There were three siblings: my older brother George, myself, my younger brother Andrew. We grew up in the same household, thinking we were all biologically, you know, um, related. I, I should have guessed, uh, you know. Pippa and Nikki, that there was a problem because my brother is like six foot six, curly hair, <laughs> and you all know me. And anybody, you can't see me on Zoom, but I'm like five foot two on a good day and straight <laughs> hair. So you look now and go, maybe there were some signs, um, but uh, and and it was shocking to him. And when he went to confront my mum because my father had passed away when I was nineteen, I went into the house because you know Greeks are volatile and we act first and think later. Us Greeks and Italians, us Southern Europeans, we are very unlike you British people. We are not calm, cool, and collected. And so <laughs> um, I'm thinking anything could happen. And as I watched my mother take this document from the government, begin to weep, I thought I was watching a movie. To be honest. Mm. With you. I thought I was watching, like, this can't be real. And my mother, just weeping on her own, um, said that, you know, all the adoptions were closed adoptions in Australia 35 years before that, um, that she had promised my father she would never tell us. And it was just a moment. And as her and my brother are having this deeply emotional moment, I thought, I'm, you know, I'm a Greek girl. What am I going to do in this moment? I'm going to go to the kitchen, make some baklava, get some coffee, do something, you know. And as I'm in the kitchen, just trying to bring some cohesion to this moment, my mother walks into the kitchen and just says, you know, Christina, since we're telling the truth today, do you want to know the whole truth? And that was the moment I turned around, which I'm still to this day not even sure why I said, you know, I've been adopted too. And my mother just began weeping and sobbing. like, um, And, you know, I was in that for, I, I didn't say anything for a few minutes, which anyone that knows me thinks that is a miracle greater than the resurrection of Jesus, that Christine didn't say anything. <laughs> and then um, the very first thing I said a few minutes later, I just went, 
am I still Greek? And I thought <laughs> I was called so many names at school for so long. And so I was, and then the very, this is like where my faith, um, you know, I'd been following Jesus for um, many years by this point. I had uh, been in the scripture. I had worked so hard on uh, you know, I come from a background of sexual abuse. So renewing my mind to get my identity in Christ through the word of God, um, I had given over a decade of my life with great intentionality to, to do that. I'm the kid that would take scriptures about who Jesus said I was. I would write them on sticket notes. I would put them on mirror. I would put it in my car when I was driving because I was so riddled with shame and guilt and condemnation and unforgiveness and bitterness and hurt and all the things that come with being abused and the pain that that brings. Now, I didn't even know at that point I had been abandoned and adopted, but the Lord had done a healing work in my life so that the next words that came out of my life right there in my wonderful Greek Orthodox mother's kitchen, I said, oh, in Greek we're talking, I said, you know, mother, oh, well, mom, you know, um, before I was formed in my mother's womb, even though I don't know whose womb that was, God knew me and he knitted together my innermost parts. He, he fashioned all of my days before as yet there was one of them. And, and the one thing I know is that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, that day, uh, Nikki and Pippa, every fact that I thought to be true about my life changed, you know, what my background was, what my, every fact changed. And to this day, I'm, I'm talking to you on this Zoom across the world and um, I still do not know the situation or the circumstances surrounding my conception. I don't know if it was a one night stand. I, I don't know if it was an ongoing adulterous affair. I actually don't even know if it was a rape. I, I don't know the situation surrounding my conception. But although I don't know the facts, those that, that, that doesn't need to define me because um, I truly believe the truth. And, you know, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, the scripture says that we are God's workmanship and we've been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a rape, maybe it was an affair, maybe it was a one night stand, but but that's not the ultimate workmanship of how I came to be on this planet. Uh, before that, um, God's workmanship. And I think when you can root your identity in that, there, of course, there's still trauma. There are still things you have to work through. There's mm. no doubt about that. But the spirit of God can do a deep healing work on the inside of you. And so, you know, I think of how my brother dealt with the, that news and how I dealt with that news. And um, we had two entirely different responses. And it's not that I'm any stronger or better it's just that I was able to go back to my faith in Jesus and rooted mm -hmm. in the word of God. And that gave me strength when I had no strength. That gave me hope when I had no hope. And instead of unraveling, it actually gave, I can't even explain it to you. I, I, I kind of almost felt special. I thought God went to a lot of trouble mm -hmm. to keep me on this planet. That's, that's really yeah. how it went. Hmm. And you talked a little bit, you mentioned there that you were you were abused as a child and talked a little bit about shame and that and and you know how did you forgive the people who abused you? Could you talk a yeah a little sure, bit more? Yeah, you know, not not I, I certainly um none of that is easy and, and we're living in a culture and you know, there have been just so many things exposed, particularly in the last mm. four or five years, yeah. uh, which I'm grateful for because 
you know, things that are in the darkness need to be brought into the light. It's the only way we can have healing and wholeness and um, deal with so so much injustice and so many uh, sectors of society where abuse is rampant. And everyone watching this needs to know abuse is never okay. And mm. Jesus Christ, it never, we don't need to protect Jesus by, you know, sort of going, let's keep it in the shadows. He, he does, he brings things into the light. And I think mm. the, the way I want to preface it is, you know, the scripture says that um, God is light and in him there is no darkness. And mm. it was a journey for for me before I could even get to forgiving the perpetrators or even forgiving myself for, for you know, choices that I made and, and my own patterns of, of destructive behavior. And there were lots of things done to me and things that I did as well. I'm, I'm as sinful as anyone else. So, you know, before I could even get to that place, I had to get to a place of trusting that Jesus does not have a dark side. So he can be trustworthy because Many men in my life were not trustworthy. People, um, my, my immediate family was great, but my parents allowed people into our home whom they trusted that they should never have trusted uh, mm. because those people violated me. And the word abuse means to use an object for a purpose for which it was never designed. And for 12 years of my life, I was used for a purpose for which God mm. never designed me to be used. And no one that has been abused was ever created for that. It is misusing uh, the creation of God, and it it messes with you. It messes with you at a soul level, at a physical level, and you know the great book, the body keeps the score of what happens um, when you're traumatized in such a way. And we've got to go back. You know, I'm 55 this year. Nobody talked about abuse when I was growing up. I didn't even have a word for what was happening to me. And it wasn't until the early 90s, particularly in Australia where it was the first time, I think it was 1992, that I actually heard the word abuse. And, you know, I had just, like most survivors, you just learn to survive. And, um, you know, I, I just learned to survive. But I had built, uh, Pippa, if I'm honest, I had built a wall around my heart and it was an impenetrable wall, wall to protect myself. And uh, different people do different things. Other people cope by numbing their pain and through substance abuse. Or um, for me, I became very performance-driven, very protective. Nobody was ever going to get close to me again. I was never going to trust anyone again. I had made many, many uh, silent vows um, and that I to, because I wanted to protect myself. And I think, if I'm honest, I was even offended at God because I thought, where are you, God? You could have protected me. I was three years old. What choice did I have? And I I had to own that. I think a lot of my healing began. Um, I, I know somebody's watching this going, Christine, you were offended at God. Like, how could you have been? But God's not surprised. I think we can bring our lament to him. We can bring our pain to him. We can bring our frustration to him. And I think it was when I was willing to be honest that in some ways I felt betrayed by God. I felt like he could have protected me and he didn't. Mm. And so that was, how could I trust a God that didn't protect mm. me when I was a child? Yeah. So that was a big process for me. Um, it was not overnight. It was not one prayer. It was, um, I had a, a wonderful spiritual director. Uh, she was actually a charismatic Catholic nun in Australia that mm. um, uh, I went to the convent um, and she was in her 80s. She didn't know who I was or my world or anything. She, But she knew Jesus and the spirit of God. And a, a long process of really daring to be honest and to work through that um, brought me to a place where I could 
trust God and understand that it grieved Jesus. As my, and when he died on the cross, he bore that pain and that suffering and it was never okay with him. I think I just carried guilt and shame for years thinking there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong, which most survivors of abuse do. That's what you think. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. God can't love me. God can't forgive me. And if you can't receive that from God, you can never give it to anybody else. And so I had to allow a deep healing, deep, deep in my wounded soul. And then when I got to that place, I understood that the walls I had built to protect me and this harsh exterior and this performance driven somehow trying to prove to someone that I'm worthy and that um, I'm worth more than being abused. When I allowed the Holy Spirit, uh, instead of me having a defense mechanism, allowing the Holy Spirit to become that defense mechanism for me and to dismantle those walls that I had built, I realized that unforgiveness and bitterness was a prison that kept me locked in. It wasn't in any way helping um, or punishing the perpetrators of the abuse. They were getting on with their lives, you know, um, and I had to get to a place where if I wanted to be free for me and if I wanted to be able to do the good works that the Lord had created me to do from before the beginning of time, Ephesians mm-hmm. 2.10, then I couldn't do that if I was bound and I I couldn't be driven by either the need for revenge or out of anger or bitterness um, or out of a wounded heart because then I would just be seeping my toxic pain on everybody else. And God wanted, he knew, I didn't know, you know, he wanted to use me to to help hurting women, um, to help victims of trafficking. And so many of them are survivors of abuse. And Mm. only God knew what he had for my future. But I do know that if I did not do the hard work of healing and allowing the Holy Spirit Uh, to go deep and counselling where I needed uh, counselling, renewing my mind with the word of God, and then the deep work of forgiveness, um, then I would not be doing what I'm doing today because I I just wouldn't. Hmm. And was there a point where your faith came alive? Because you had some kind of, so your your mother, uh, I don't know about your father, but your mother obviously was was a Christian background but was there a moment when your faith sort of came to life yeah it was you know uh, so I grew up in a staunch Greek Orthodox home you know to be Greek is to be Orthodox <laughs> and um and uh especially when you're Greek immigrants um the church and the Orthodox tradition it, it is your whole identity because that that is your community um and so my life uh, revolved around our local Orthodox church, but I didn't understand anything. I certainly was not, I did not have a saving knowledge of Jesus because the whole liturgy is a three hour liturgy in ancient Greek. And so we didn't speak ancient Greek. And um, so I really didn't know what was going on, but you might laugh, Nikki, because I, I remember being a small child, even before I went to school. And I, I used to be in church and um, I would look at on the wall, there were all of the icons of the saints and they just looked awesome to me. And I used to wonder, 
I wonder how I can get my picture on the church wall like these people. And then someone told me, like, you have to be martyred. And I thought, okay, I, don't, I no longer want to do that. So it was kind of, that was a very short-lived desire to have my picture on the wall at the Greek Orthodox Church. But but um, so I really had no understanding. I, I had an awareness of God. There's no doubt about that. I can't ever recollect where I didn't have a God awareness. But I did not have any understanding. You know, we didn't even read the scripture, it, not in my uh, church. It was only the priest that read the Bible. And then at school, at first it was an Anglican nun in my uh, my elementary school that um, she she came and she would just teach. In Australia, we had this thing called scripture, which was required religious education for one hour a week. And you had Protestant and Catholic. And because I was Greek Orthodox, they wanted me to go to the Catholic one, but all my friends were in the Protestant one. So I used to sneak into the, um, the, the Anglican one because that's what we had in Australia. And so I used to go and, and I think that was the first time I began to hear even someone teach the Bible in English that I understood. And it was, and she was just so awesome. This unassuming, I must have this thing for nuns. And just so, and I think it's because of my Greek Orthodox background, you know, it's just, I, I had an affinity and the Lord knew that that's how I would be brought over. And so that was kind of where I began to be aware, but I was still so broken, you know, I, I, I didn't personalize it. At school, um, again, I would sneak into the the Protestant religious education classes because we had to go every Tuesday. And it was this um, this Baptist ex-biker that got, she was a mother of four and she got saved while she was on an acid trip during the Jesus movement. And she was the most fascinating person I'd ever met. And I mean, she I, I don't know if all of the residue of the acid trips she used to take were gone, but she was on fire for Jesus. And I used to just go into that class and ask question after question. Um, and then, so again, the Lord was just luring me and bringing me in. And But what was really defining for me was at Sydney University, and I was, again, understanding I was so broken. My, my spiritual journey was not just a linear journey. I, I, I had various encounters with God, but it was at Sydney University, a friend of mine said that there was um, this mission happening for a week and that the evangelist was a Greek or a Greek Cypriot and a mutual friend of ours, Jay John. I didn't even know there were any Greeks that were Christians. And at that point, I was just living, um, I was so broken. My father had died. I'd sort of given up on God because it was like, you know what, this uh, just disappointment after, I'd sort of take two steps forward, have a major disappointment, 10 steps back. And so when I was in at university, the last thing I, I wanted to do was go to a, a Christian meeting or a Christian mission. But she was saying, look, he's, he's funny and he's Greek. And it was just what interested me at the point. It wasn't even that I was going to go to some mission. It was that there was a Greek man that was going to speak about Jesus. I just found that fascinating. And so I remember she took me and I was mesmerized. I just had never heard anything like it. And, um, he was so gracious to me, Nikki and Pippa. And, um, 
he, I mean, I'm sure he tells the story too. You know, I, I would, I was just that, I was the, the person you did not want in your meeting because I was so angry at God. I was so broken because of all of my past. And, but he would meet with me for coffee and, and just did not flinch. I mean, I was not even polite. I was not even kind. I was not even gentle. And I would just bombard him. And I was so angry at God. And he would just, J. John, drink his coffee and answer every question. And then he would just invite me for another coffee. And the agreement was I would go to the next day of the mission and then only so that I could meet him for coffee afterwards so that I could just berate him about just how nonsensical everything he was saying was and how un and untrue it was. Well, eventually I have to say that um, in all of that process, I truly encountered Jesus. Mm -hmm. I truly did. And from that, um, I got involved in a local church in our uh, city and which began a great discipleship process but I always say something triggered with J. John. And then even when I became a, a Christian communicator, um, I had four of his cassette tapes. That was 1989, 1990. Um, 1989, he came to Sydney Uni, 1988-89. I had his cassette tapes and then I would just follow him around the East Coast of Australia and watch him preach. And I would memorise, he knows this, I would memorise four talks, four evangelistic talks, which is probably all I preached for 10 years. Um, if anyone hears me do an altar call today, they would go, that is J. John. 30 years later, verbatim, I still do a J. John altar call. Um, and so that's kind of how the journey happened in my life. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, when uh, we first met you, you were sitting on a motorbike on a stage and um, we were completely blown away by your talk. And um, I'll never forget that moment. I must be, I don't know whether it's 15 years ago, something like that, but you were, you were speaking at a Hillsong conference in London. And I think we were, we were also doing something there, but, but um but you were sitting on the stage on a motorbike and you gave this unbelievably brilliant talk. It was funny. It was uh, powerful. It was anointed. It was just extraordinary. And I'll never forget it, actually. And um, and that was when we said, please, will you come and speak at Focus <laughs> and Leadership Conference? And, <laughs> and everything else. Everything else. But at that, at that time, your prof you didn't have much of a profile, did you? I mean, it was just... You were just brilliant, but nobody, nobody realised it, apart from Hillsong. Not outside of Australia, I, because I was, you know, I'm such a local church girl. So we were building the local church and I was the youth evangelist for our denomination state youth movement. So I was, you know, I was travelling as much as I do now, just all within country towns in Australia. So, you know, Dubbo and Narandra. I know you've never heard of it. It's not like London, New York, Palace, Paris, Dubbo. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and so I was in the back of nowhere sort of doing youth revival meetings, loving it as much as I love what I do now. Um, but outside of Australia, people probably weren't aware. I always sort of laugh. It, it sort of happens to me a little bit in America. People are like, oh, my gosh, where did you come from? I'm like, honey, yes. I've been here for 25 years <laughs> just in the backside of the desert. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, we invited you to focus, mm. and that was a very important mm. moment for you, wasn't it, Pips? Yeah, amongst everything else. Yes, I remember that. We put you in a, a very nasty caravan. Yeah, but that I was traumatised. <laughs> I'm still in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> 
we, we look after you better now. We try. Um, but um, one of the things I'm so grateful to you is that, do you remember that, that you said to me one day, you know, what are you doing? And I was involved, you know, I'd always been involved with church. I was sporting Nikki. I was doing lots of things. And you were saying, but why aren't you getting up front? Why aren't you leading something? Why aren't you doing? And I kept saying to you, oh, there are people who are better, more gifted, and you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have it. You said that's got nothing to do with it, that you should step up, you have this opportunity, and you should lead. And as a result of that, um, I, we started co-leading much more together. Um, I started getting on the stage, which I've always thought I would never do, terrified. I keep thinking, well, I have to. Chris Caney told me I have to do it. So she says, I've got to do it. I better do it. But I think it's shifted something in my thoughts because you weren't saying, oh, you'll be good at it. You didn't say that. You just said, this is what God has called you to do. You have the opportunity to do it and you should do it for the sake of yeah. the other people and for the sake of the women in our church and all those things. And for that reason alone, I've, it changed so many things. So I'm eternally grateful to you. And I'm even more grateful because I have enjoyed leading services, um, speaking, doing interviews so much more since we've done it together. I, it, made, it has made such a difference to my life. So uh, not only we're yeah. both we're both deeply grateful, and of course that is part of what you do. Propel women is is kind mm. of to to encourage mm. women to get involved, yes, and to to step up. Definitely, yes. because you know people need to see the the image of God reflected beautifully, male and female. He created them, and so if we're only ever presenting one half of that image, um, sometimes I think then we wonder why we have some of the challenges that we have in um, the world. But to see, I, I would think when I stand before the Lord. Um, more of my reward will come out of helping other women take their place than anything that I've done. Because, you know, I've been sort of walking out my purpose for decades. Nothing delights me more. And if we're going to get the job done of helping the world uh, know about the love and the grace and the mercy and the beauty of Jesus, we need all hands on deck. And so I'm, I'm like, okay. Um, and I think, you know, if we all just compare, well, who's got what gift? The Bible says those that compare themselves amongst themselves are not wise. It's not about comparing gifts. It's about everyone embracing their place. You know, Paul writes in Corinthians that God sets every member in place. And so there's a place, Pippa, only you can take. I can't take that. And so I could come into HTB and I could do certain things that could help supplement what's already happening. But um, there is no way I could take your place. And that means there would be this hole and this gap and so many other women that would never be mobilized and that would never step up to the play to their place if you don't embrace your place and so I think um it's a lot less to do with gift and talent and a whole lot more to do with obedience of just embracing our place and when we do that look how much you're flourishing and I listen to your podcast and you're thriving and Beth Redman and I always rave about you and we just like go I, I, and I go back to that I go remember when she didn't want to do anything I really didn't too I really <laughs> didn't <laughs> so miracles happen and they do um, but Chrissy, you've had quite a few challenges in life, and then you had a health challenge. So, and how did you cope with that? You were diagnosed with cancer. You're yeah. this faithful servant doing everything, and then you're hit with this. Um, sure. How did how did that feel? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, 
let me just preface this with one thing is that I do live with the reality. Maybe it's because I'm an evangelist. I am profoundly aware we are all going to die one day. And so I've settled that issue that I, I don't know how I'm going to go. None of us know how we're going to go. And so I, I, I live ready, you know, in that sense that um, I've made my peace with God and um, on some days i will be really happy to go home. So <laughs> there are just like, you know, so I think when you've settled that issue and death has lost its sting, um, you know, that, that, that kind of, is okay. So I said to my doctor, I remember I landed um, in Australia. I, I had all my tests done uh, before. And then I landed in Australia, got the phone call and it was, Christine, I need to tell you the test has come back and you, um, it's cancer and it's, um, you're going to have to. And, and I remember the doctor was feeling really stressed to tell me because the cancer was actually between my larynx and my trachea which is on your voice box. So I, at first I had to try not to laugh, to go, really, devil? My voice box. Like, I mean, I mean, could we not be a little bit more like subtle? Okay, right. My, so it was, it was almost like I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Okay. And so, and I remember I said to the doctor on the phone, I said, um, well, look, this is going to go one of three ways. I said, what I'm believing for and hoping for is that God will supernaturally heal me. I'm in a conference. I've got one week's worth of worship and the word. I'm going to be in that environment. I'm going to lay hands on. I'm going to get everyone to lay hands on me. And I said, and I believe I'll fly back to America and we'll look at the, uh, you'll do another biopsy and another MRI and you'll go, oh, it's gone. I said, now that's plan A. If that doesn't happen, plan B. Um, that God will use medicine, the doctors, uh, you know, some sort of other form. Um, he's gifted doctors and he's given us great medicine and great treatments and that will be the walk I will walk. I said, or Jesus will take me home and heal me and I'll be healed. I'll be fine. I go, some people down here might be a little bit sad, but I'll be fine. I'll be happy. We're, we're gonna. And I said, so plan A, I win. Plan B, I win. Plan C, I win. I said, you can't. And the doctor, honestly, I could just like going, like, are you smoking something? Is there something wrong with you? I'm not saying, I'm not pretend. Look, I lost my father um, to lung cancer at 19. And, mm. uh, you know, that's almost 40 years ago. It was horrific. Uh, what, what, so I'm not in any way minimizing that. It was the worst you could imagine. It was what that did to our family, what my father endured. And this is before there was, you know, 40 years ago, there weren't the treatments there are today. It was, it was horrible. Mm. So um, I hate cancer. I, I, yeah. I hate to, I hate what it does to people. I hate what it does to the body. I hate how it devastates people. But I think um, I, I, I was able to approach it with a mindset of like, okay, I came back. I remember when I got the first test back and it hadn't gone away. I was like, well, I guess that's not the case. That's not how it's going to happen. And, you know, I really believe in divine healing. So I was hoping that was going to be my story, but that was not my story. Um, and so then um, I just worked with the doctors here in America who were unbelievably awesome. And um, I had my surgery and uh, the Lord has been so gracious in my case. You know, I've, I've seen him do some things like I've uh, they took out half my th thyroid and it's very unusual that I don't at this point have to take any medication and it's been six years. And so I've, and, and I'm still doing everything that I'm doing that in itself to me is, is some divine intervention in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And, you and know, your voice sounds great, Christine. You haven't phrase, I've slowed in any way. I've preached more than ever. I've, you know, been able to communicate and help people. And I, I, I am way more aware every day what a gift every day is, uh, what a gift every even doing this Zoom with you is a gift. I mean, there, there could have been every possibility five years ago that I would not talk again or that I would not be able to, you know, do what I do. So mm. I, um, I'm very... I'm very grateful in that way and I live even more incredibly aware that I guess like scripture says I live every day like it could be my last and every day like I'm preparing for my grandchildren's grandchildren. I, I kind of do that simultaneously. So mm. that's kind of how that's thus far mm. as we're speaking today. Um I'm totally cancer-free. I'm totally strong. I pray that's the way it remains. But as of today, that that's kind of where it all is. Hmm. That's amazing. Christine, you've, um, you're amazing. You're so positive and you've come through so much. Now, I've heard that, you know, life is tough. You hit difficulties. And I, I believe that you've actually hit some difficulties over the last few years. And you've talked a little bit about therapy. Um, you've said a little bit already about therapy. Um, why did you sort of seek therapy and what what do you feel about therapy for helping people generally? For sure, yeah. I I love it. I believe that God can use everything. And so, um, you know, I, there are times where you need somebody that um, is also trained to help um, help you think right. And so in some places, um, and some of the things I want to, uh, I want to talk about that. Like I have great Christian community. I have great friends. Of course, I believe ultimately for me, um, the Holy spirit is our wonderful counselor. So that, 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 that is where it all starts for me. So, and even when it comes to therapy for me, um, it's very important for me that that person is, um, a spirit filled counselor that has all of the academic training and all of the degrees, but is rooted and grounded also in the word of God and very sensitive to the spirit of God. Um, because I want, um, I, I want someone that can help me to process what is going on. And I hit a wall. I think a lot of us do at different times. And I felt uh, just one attack after the other. And I think, you know, I've just finished writing a book about this. How did I get here? Um, because I had hit this place. And I think that was a, you know, my, my I had Nick and I lost a lot of his sister, his brother-in-law, um, his sister-in-law. My mother died I, while I was celebrating my 50th birthday here in America on a boat with 150 friends that night, my mother died in Australia. Oh. I just had kind of, and then um, I had a personal betrayal from someone that I really, really trusted. And, you know, David wrote in the Psalms, it would have been easier if my enemy had yeah. come against me. But when it was my friend that I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that wound, that wound triggered um, so much. It happened at the same time that my mother died and my sister-in-law, who was my age, but I think losing my mother and then my friend betraying me uh, mm. triggered perhaps a lot of the abandonment, the rejection, the mm. mother wounds. It was like an invitation from the Holy Spirit to go deeper. Mm. It so deeply affected me, guys. I didn't think um, that I was going to make it. I, I just was so, it, it just, uh, I guess, re-traumatized me in um in a way that I didn't even know it was capable of yeah. doing that level of abandonment, uh, betrayal in my, I, you know, the way I had processed it. Um, yeah. And then um, I just, 
at work there were a couple of things I I had made a mistake and someone didn't extend forgiveness and I'm like wow like can you not be me and make a mistake and acknowledge it and rectify it I mean you know sometimes the pressure that comes with being a public figure and there appears to be yeah. less grace and yeah. uh, a whole different set of rules you know and you're just like wow you know like um yeah. and then I began to think do I want to do this do I want to yeah. still be at the forefront where there is no room for error no room for uh you know rectifying mistakes yeah. and 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 uh, making things right and it seems to be so little grace and I think in the cancel culture in which we live people just want to I mean you could do 30 years of good make one unintentional mistake and you're like you know like you're yeah. the worst or or because of what you're associated with people will read things into th- without knowing you without ever talking they'll make assumptions yeah. about you and I guess the more the greater my sphere of influence the more assumptions people make and yeah. you know people just outright lie on in, yeah. in online and you're just like do I spend my whole life uh trying to you know you, you just go do I want yeah. do I want to do this I think I'm just happy to pack up and run a taverna in Santorini and just really enjoy <laughs> my the best way I can explain it to you guys is um I you know Nick my husband like he loves to watch these uh Netflix series on um it's so funny on like the Navy Seals you know like how they, they, they I don't know what you your equivalent is in England yes yeah, okay. Navy SEALs, we know them. You know, yeah. and so he was watching this series um, and it's called Hell Week and it's the week that you go in. You know, they try to break you down emotionally, physically, um, in every way. And the goal is, I mean, you you only maybe get three hours sleep the whole week and the, only the elite Marines can get into Hell Week. Like you've got to be in the top 1% yeah. to yeah. even get in to do this whole week where they are just going to batter you down, batter you down to try to break you there so they can self-select so that you don't break when you're on the front lines. And the whole goal is that you go into, if they can break you down so you can ring the bell in the middle of the, and just go, tag, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah. And um, you go and have a shower. You're still in the Marines, but you're never going to be a SEAL. And I've always said, you know, how I operate in the body of Christ, the Lord has called our ministry to be like the Navy SEALs of the Christian church. Like, you know, we're just, we're tough. We're just going to keep going. And that's what we do. Well, as I was watching this, they drop the guys out of a helicopter into the ocean. They're going to be there for nine hours. They've got to swim to shore, all the normal stuff. And I just started to weep and, you know, which is not normal for me. And my husband, Nick, just looked at me and he goes, you know, what, what's the matter? I said, I think this this is where I am right now. And I'm, I'm, this is probably around 2017. I mean, I was just sobbing. Mm. And um, I said, I feel like spiritually speaking, I've been dropped out of another helicopter for a, a big mission, you know, and I'm in the freezing cold Pacific Ocean and uh, I've got to swim to shore. And I know I can do it. I know my body can do it. I know spiritually I can do it. I know mentally I can do it. Um, I know physically I can do it. I know I'm not going to die. I know I can do this. I said, but for the first time after following Jesus for over three decades, I don't know if I want to. And that moment uh, scared me probably more than any other moment in my Christian life because I had never not wanted to. Uh, you know, it was I've, I've thought at times I can't, I'm not able, it's bigger than me, but I've never thought I don't think I want to. Um, it's mm. too painful. It's too painful mm. being a public profile, having such a 
a large uh, public profile. It's too painful trying to lead hundreds of people in 22 countries around the world. It's too painful um, to trust people and be betrayed. It's too painful to live on the other side of the world when all your family is dying across the other side of the world. Mm. It's just too painful. And I thought I had sort of worked it out. I thought I said to Nick, I could just take my foot off the gas and nobody would really know because there is so little discernment in the body of Christ that I've got so, I've got so much momentum from 30 years. I mean, I wasn't thinking I'm going to go do anything stupid. I like, But if I just took my foot off the gas, I've got so much momentum. Everyone will still think I'm doing my thing. Like, you know, Chris Kane's doing a thing. I could drop my speaking down to 10% and I'd still be doing more than most women. I could drop my, um, you know, I, I don't have to lead anything and nobody would know. I've got enough books out there. There's enough TV out there. Like, you know, I don't even, nobody would know. And then I was like weeping and I said, but Jesus would know. Jesus would know that I stopped pressing. Jesus would know that I took my foot off the gas. Jesus would know that I was no longer straining forward to lay a hold of all of that for which he had laid a hold of me. And I mean, I was just a mess. And Nick was like, you need to go to therapy. And so (laughs) he goes, this is too big for me. Um, You need to go and work this through. Um, And that was where I just started a new season of like, okay, obviously I have a deeper layer of healing and I've worked mm. for 30 years with, you know, constantly going deeper with inner healing. Um, mm. I've, I've always been an inside out kind of leader. Now people see my public profile or my preaching or television and, and they assume certain things, but I'm actually quite uh, reflective and, and I love the desert fathers and mothers. And I, I, I like, I have a, a, a very deep interior life. And, and so, um, and you, with all my brokenness, I've had to uh, do all of that. And my confidence and my strength that people see on a platform flows from that deep rooted confidence in Christ. Mm. And um, so that was like a, a real decision coming into around 2018, um, was I going to keep going as I hit 55 this year? Did, did I, was I going to, like Caleb, be able to say, I'm as strong now as I was then? Now give hmm. me, Moses promised me Horeb. I know I've done a lot, um, but this isn't all that God's put me on the earth to do. Am I going to keep pressing that accelerator um, and doing what? the Lord has asked me to do, you know, no matter what anybody else might think about that. And so, um, you know, it was, it probably took a couple of years to, to really land there in my spirit. And I would Mm. say kind of last year was when I would say, I'm back, I'm back Mm. and um, I'm ready. And, and I think, it was just in time for a global pandemic and to lead our team through the pandemic and coming into this season. Um, and, and I feel like the next 20 years are going to be the best 20 years. Uh, I'm sure they will be. I have no doubt of that. And what do you feel that, that God, and in this season, what do you feel that God is doing? What do you feel he's saying? Yeah, I, I, listen, Nikki, I, I can't help but be excited. I, I truly believe we are... Um, on the edge of a revival unlike anything we have ever seen. And uh, when I say revival, I'm not just talking like warm fuzzies, sprinkles from heaven. I am, but I am believing people are going to encounter the spirit of God in ways that that, that we haven't seen um, and mm. it will impact 
the earth, like the real world. I think all the pain and the suffering we've seen with racial injustice being brought to the fore and so much pain and suffering. I think a a compassionate church will arise that truly has the heart of Jesus for the poor and for the marginalised. And, um, you know, we'll be just going enough is enough when it comes to racism and sexism and misogyny and so much pain and suffering in our world. And, you know, all of these things for Jesus have always been too sides of the same coin you know people go is it evangelism or justice I'm like both <laughs> is it spirit or truth both is it you know like like I'm why are we polarizing things that are two no. sides of the same coin always have been I think we're going to see that we've had so many revivals throughout history that have tended to emphasize one side of the coin whatever it might be you know um and I think what we're going to see, is it about righteousness or justice? Both of those things. Is it grace or truth? Both of those things. I think we're going to see um, our world, uh, as our world gets darker, our, the church will be lighter. But it'll come with great mm. cost. There is, and I think that's why I went through, the Lord was preparing me the, in 2017, 2018. Um because it's it, whichever way you want to slice this up, it is not going to be cool to be a Christian, um, but we yeah. are called to be compassionate, to be loving, to be gracious. Um, but yet uh, it, the gospel is very inclusive, obviously, whosoever will, and entirely exclusive, Jesus is the way to God. And so no matter which way we slice it up and and however we uh, present things to the world, um, it, the the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. And I think we're going to have to accept that. Um, What I think the Lord is sorting out is where we've mixed it up and we've brought a lot of Christian culture and our own biases and our own religiosity. um, And uh, we've brought a lot of that to the table and said, that's Jesus. That's not Jesus. But, um, but I think we have to be prepared to endure. Uh, You know, the writer to the Hebrew says you will have need of endurance and the church will need to endure. There's no easy way to say this. Um, uh, we have to get good at understanding how to suffer well We're in hope and joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost in, in a world that is not joy-filled, in a world that is not hope-filled. But I do think um, that Jesus is bringing us back to himself because I'm more joy-filled than I've ever been and the world's mm. in the greatest mess it's ever been in. And mm. I'm more hope-filled than I've ever been and the world, the world has no hope. And so I think it's understanding that, you know, the Lord said in uh, through the prophet Isaiah that, behold, I do a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And I think we've been talking for so many years about new wineskins and new wine. But, you know, when you're stitching a new wineskin, it's painful. I think we have all been part of that stitching process and the Holy Spirit is stitching and we've all felt the ouch of the new wineskin being forged. Very painful, um, extremely painful, deeply convicting when I think we – realize ourselves, um, you know, just uh, how much repentance we each have needed to do, how much lamenting we've each needed to do as this new wineskin is stitched. But um, do I believe God's doing a new thing? Absolutely. Do I believe that he's renewing all things? Totally. Do I believe that we're on the edge of the greatest revival? We have seen uh, certainly, and I would dare say almost, I mean, it's bold words, but in the history of the church, I actually really do. I am so hope-filled as I talk to the global church, the church here in America, you know, it's having its own reckoning. But when I, you know, I have the privilege of being with the global church, even in my own team um, every week, and 
when I hear what the Lord's doing and what's happening, and what yeah. I think if we are willing to get on board with this, we are going to see the great end time harvest that we've been believing God for. Hmm. Mm, that's amazing. So encouraging. I wanted just on that endurance thing and the, and the pain. I, I've heard you use the analogy of your um, your little skiing um, oh, encounter yes. um, and, <laughs> yes. and the recovery process for that. Um, and just yes. just say a little bit about it's that because that, that's a that's a great expression. analogy of of, um, mm. of 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 what it takes mm. for sure. And I think for all of us, it's like when I I was skiing and I. I, I was trying to show off to my husband and anyway, uh, the, the pride does come before a fall. I just want everyone to know because that's exactly what happened. And um, on that mountain, uh, they had to get the ski patrol to get me because I had snapped my ACL, uh, tore my MCL, tore my meniscus and fractured my knee. So I did hmm. every worst thing you could do in a moment. They took me down, put me in an ambulance, took me to the hospital. And I had to have... What in Australia we have a hamstring graft so that a piece of my hamstring could replace my snapped ACL. Now, your ACL is a little tendon smaller than your little finger tucked in behind your knee. So before that accident, I didn't even know I had an ACL. I didn't even know what an ACL, I didn't know if I had an ABC, EFG. I wouldn't have even known it existed. But this little tendon smaller than my little finger tucked in behind my knee actually paralyzed my whole body. I couldn't move. I couldn't function. And again, I, I guess the point in that is that, uh, um, you know, when we think a little part of the body doesn't matter, every part of the body needs to be yeah. in place because it all matters. But mm. once after I had my operation, the physical trainer came in and said to me, Christine, most people don't recover fully from the surgery you've just had because of the damage that was done. It's not that they can't. You absolutely can because with the hamstring graft, your right knee is now stronger than your left knee. But here is the deal. When the accident happened, the pain was instantaneous, but it happened so quickly and it was over. He goes, but the recovery process is going to take many, many months. And, Christine, you have to understand that the pain of the recovery will far outweigh the pain of the injury. Hmm. So, Christine... You can either recover quickly or slowly. You can recover, uh, you know, completely or partially. It is entirely up to you. But the degree to which you are willing to embrace the pain of recovery is the degree to which you will recover. Hmm. And I would say that is the Christian journey. Um, no one is going to get out of this easy. We all live in life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trials. You know, I, I love, I've been saying to my staff all year, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, not you might. Peter said, do not be surprised by the fiery trials. And then James takes it a step further and says, consider it pure joy. I'm not there yet. But what <laughs> I am saying is nobody, <laughs> nobody is going to get out of this thing without some pain, without yeah. some suffering. So we have to learn to endure. And I think the writer to the Hebrews, and we see the theme reiterated in, you know, the books that all talk about the end times, Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, Revelation, endurance is what Christians have to get good at. You, it, This is the time. And I've said it to my team for the last year, 
where we are in the spiritual gymnasium. We're picking up all those weights we've never wanted to pick up. All of those muscles that are flabby that we don't like, spiritually speaking, God's saying, I'm putting some weights in there and I need you to strengthen those spiritual muscles, you have need of endurance. I said, we can thrive in the midst of suffering. We can thrive in the midst of flourishing. It is a biblical promise, but you have to have endurance in order to thrive. And so, because we do not, we're not exempt from the pain and suffering on the earth, Um, but in it, Jesus promises to strengthen us. And he says, obviously, later on in, um, you know, in the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet says, those that wait upon the Lord, that's the key to all of this, will renew their strength, that will mount up on wings like eagles. We will run, even in a global pandemic, and not grow weary. We will walk and not faint. And so I'm a great believer that you can actually thrive and flourish in the midst of it. That doesn't mean you're not going to be touched by the pain and the suffering, but because of our hope in Christ and because we're rooted and grounded in Christ, then the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives on the inside of us. And that same spirit gives us joy and gives us peace and gives us comfort and gives us strength when we have none of our our own. And how in practice do you develop that relationship? What is your your pattern for developing that relationship? Yeah, and I think we've all got practices. You become what you practice, and so it's very important. I I think I've cultivated for over the last three decades an intimacy with the Holy Spirit. I would say it all started for me in the early 90s. Um, In the very early 90s, I had read a book that that had the title Good Morning Holy Spirit, and Mm. I realised after I read that book I thought, I really don't know the the third person of the Trinity. Like I I knew that God is a triune God, but, you know, it was sort of like something you said in the Apostles' Creed. But it it wasn't like like, in what does that really mean? And probably if I'm honest with you, I would have thought it was more like Casper the ghost, you know, kind of like it's like the, the holy Casper the friendly ghost. And so I cultivated then in my prayer journal um, I would begin every morning. And I mean, it's it's first like you're writing a letter to a pen pal. That's when I read back to those early letters, like someone you don't know. And I wrote, good morning, Holy Spirit. I'm saying this to just help somebody like, uh, good morning, Holy Spirit. I know I really don't know you and I have no idea who or what you are. I mean, this is like, I I laugh when I read it, but I think God bless my heart. I think Mm. the Lord knew my heart. But can I just say out of beginning, what began for me as a pen pal relationship, like in that sense, like, okay. Um, I then um, attended uh, certain meetings where, you know, I, I, I had hands laid on me and I, I did encounter um, a, a very visceral physical feeling of um, the Holy Spirit of God. It became something so deeply Uh, embodied personal in me. And from that, I began to read a whole lot of books, study the word of God about the spirit of God, because it's easier to get to know someone when you know more things about them. And so that that, like, and I I just began in the early nineties to see the Holy Spirit as a person and go, okay, just like I would meet any friend and I would do coffee dates. I know this sounds weird, but because I had to get my mind into this thought that the Holy Spirit is a person. And so I would sit, and to be honest, I, I still periodically do this too, where I do, I make two cups of coffee. To this point, the Holy Spirit hasn't drunk his. Uh, but, uh, and, and it's it's like if I feel that I'm just getting a little bit too familiar and I'm just, it's not really real to me, I will 
it, for me, it helps physically to have two chairs, a table, and go, holy, I don't know if this is helping at all, but it's it's just cultivating a personal relationship. And and I, I just talk with him all through the day. I'm, it, like, you know, it's just like I feel his presence so near. Um, I... I, I talk to him. He's given me a prayer language. So I, I, I just feel that I, I am able to commune very intimately with the Holy Spirit and I sense his presence. And if I don't, I do whatever I need to do to make that right. That could be walking along the ocean. For me, it's very helpful to get out in nature. If I feel I'm just too cluttered, too busy, my emotions are too overwhelmed, um, silence and solitude are very important to me. And, um, you know, uh, getting out in nature. I know during a pandemic, this sounds, you know, for some people it's not as easy as it is, but even if you have to lock yourself into the bathroom for just five minutes to just create a little space, we just need to do what we need to do. Yeah, that's very good. And go on, yeah, go on, Pip. And just that, uh, I mean, you've really covered it, but I, I think we've, you, I've, we've heard you talk about prayer being um, that there isn't enough prayer in the church and that we need to pray at this time. If you're happy to say a little, don't yeah. wear you out, wear your voice box out. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Um, you know, nothing happens uh, without prayer. And uh, could you imagine, I think if we keep reframing, I think sometimes we have ideas of what we think prayer is, but um, the God of the universe invites us in to have a conversation with him. That still blows my mind three decades after following Jesus that God would care, that God would listen, that God not only would, wants to, like as in proactively longs for that kind of relationship. And, you know, there is no doubt um, this last year in our ministry, in our life, our, our prayer life has gone to new levels because let me just say, there's nothing like a global pandemic and being locked down. I mean, I'm coming to you from my house. So I'm talking to you in your house. There's nothing like being a lockdown and the whole world being flattened by an invisible virus that we can't even see with our eyes to make you realise that you have zero control over anything, that you really, all your best fraught plans and purposes and the greatest minds in the world could not solve this crisis. The great, it's like we better depend on God. And if we can allow an invisible virus to lock us up in our homes, which we need to do, why would we not talk to an invisible God that we would go, okay, all of a sudden I am realising this realm that I can't see is more re real than the realm that I can see because there's something that I can't see that has put every person on the planet in their home. So there is, a, and I feel like in a sense the Lord has invited us to that. You know, when my kids were little and they were, uh, you know, uh, messing up, I would tell them, go to your room. You are in time out. I want you to think about what you've done. And when you think about what you've done, I want you then, I'm going to tell you when you can come out and we can talk about what you've done. And I feel like the Lord has given us like a global time. He said, well, you know what, everyone, I'm, I'm done with all this. All of you get to your rooms. I want <laughs> you to get to your room and I want you to think about what is going on and what you've done. And I think he let us out for a few minutes 
And then it's like, no, no, you have not. Everyone get back to your rooms because you have not worked all of this out. And I think this is our time where we better be laying a hold of God. And um, it's a time for fervent prayer. I truly believe that the fervent, effectual prayer of righteous people avails much. I'm, I'm a great believer. I, you know, some people think prayer doesn't matter. I, I think prayer matters. I think mm-hmm. prayer moves God. And when God is moved, God moves mountains. And Mm. so um, I am uh, very committed. When I think of the miracles I have seen this last year in A21, in Propel, in our own ministry, it is not possible for these things to happen in the natural realm during a global pandemic while everyone is locked in their home. There is not a possible way we should have moved forward on every measure. And we did. Two things in that. God's like, Chris, I don't need you running around the world uh, to do what I want to do. I'm quite fine. Thanks very much. Um, and the other thing is if I need to get resources to you, I'll get it to you however I want to get it to you um, and I will make it happen. So, that, again, that realisation that God is God and we are not, uh, but we have prayed this year like never before. And so I've seen the power of prayer to continue to tear down Jericho walls, to continue to part Red Seas, even during a global pandemic. In 2021, um, I have seen more signs and wonders and miracles in this last year than I have in all the years before that. Hmm. I want to thank you too for what you've been doing with A21 because that is phenomenal. And there are so many people suffering. It's the the um, sex trafficking, the women um, caught in these awful cycles oh, yeah. of abuse is so terrible. And we're so grateful to you for what you're doing, your passion. Obviously, what's mm. come out, you know, the life you've lived, you understand the condition of these women. And so many women need to escape from the terrible lives that they're leading. And it's wonderful what you're doing. And we're so grateful to you for, for that. Um, We love you all. I feel like we're all in partnership together and Mm. it it is a privilege. And hopefully it gives someone some hope that God can use all the broken fragments of your past um, Mm. and weave all those things together um, to to give you a future. You know, I was thinking uh, every time we put a trafficker in jail or every time a a young woman or a child or a man is rescued um, out of forced labour trafficking or sex trafficking or or begging, um, I, I kind of feel like, Joseph, when he stood before his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and, and he, you know, his brothers were so frightened that he was going to kill them or put them in prison. And he said, no, 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 you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for this very purpose mm. to save many people alive. And I, I feel like that every time is like a redemption, what the enemy meant for evil in my life to destroy mm. my life and my future. Uh, God has worked it together um, and it has resulted by his grace in, in, in rescuing many, many people across the world. Hmm. That's fantastic. Um, it's also uh, it, when this airs, it's going to be Mother's Day in the UK. And Christine, you have combined, you've been a mother, you have had um, your marriage, you've got these two gorgeous girls and yet you, and you've achieved so much. How have you held your life in balance with all those things going on? Where, how, where are your priorities? How have you done it all? You know, I'd say, people, no doubt, the single question I am asked most often is how do you do it all, marriage, motherhood, ministry, that whole deal? And um, I think the best way for me to explain it, the most succinct way, is I don't feel like I have a very 
pump up mentalized life. And I, I know some people function like that. But for me, I have a very interconnected life. And the mm. best way I can explain it, it's like a wheel that has a hub in the center and then different spokes, just like a normal bike wheel. And so at all t- at times, you know, I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm an employer, I'm a minister. I've got lots of different spokes on that wheel. Mm. But at the center of that wheel is a hub and that's just Jesus. And so Jesus Mm -hmm. is the center. Now, as long as that wheel is well oiled with the oil of the Holy Spirit of God, um, that wheel turns really well. And just like a normal wheel, we we put oil on our wheel and it spins. And it's not, um, so for me, it's not how much I do for God that would ever burn me out. It's what I would ever stop doing. So if I stopped my spiritual disciplines, if I stopped my personal intimacy with Jesus, if I stopped being in the word, if I stopped being connected in local church, some of the, those things are what would hinder and perhaps rupture my relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because if my relationship with the Holy Spirit is intimate daily, then during my either my quiet time or a walk, you know, outside or whatever it might be, as I'm reflecting, um, I feel like that's where my priorities come up. That if one of my children, I will feel an, a tug in my heart that maybe Sophia needs a little bit extra attention, or Nick might need something, or one of my officers might need a little bit more attention. Um, you know, we manage our lives very well, very Steve Covey, big rocks in first, all the normal stuff you do with the calendar, all you know, all the best practices, naturally speaking, we implement them. But the only way that you really can keep it all going, because I don't feel like I'm juggling a whole lot of balls. I feel like I have one goal, Jesus, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. He said before Jesus left, he said, I'm going to send you another, a comforter. Here's our our counselor. Here's our comforter. Here's our enabler. Like I know where my strength comes from. My strength does not come from me and my strength does not even come from my strategic plan or my balanced life because all of those things are not going to give me ultimate strength. It's the spirit of God. And so if I have that in order. And Nick and I work, again, we're very much a team. Um, We work very hard to keep strife out of our marriage, strife out of our homes, strife out of our ministry, um, and to keep it a place of peace because then you can hear from God a lot easier. And then um, we major on the majors, forgive quickly. Um, The stuff that matters matters and most of the other stuff doesn't. So don't don't make a big deal out of small things. walk in love, walk in grace, walk in forgiveness. Um, Don't hold offenses. Probably the biggest wise piece of advice I got 30 years ago was, you know, Christine, you can only be offended if you can be offended. So don't choose in your life ahead of time. I will not take on offense and then do whatever you need to do to make sure that that happens. So I think if I can keep my spirit, the best way I can word it is uncluttered, um, then I it, it feels pure and open. And somehow, even as I've matured in my faith, I've worked hard to keep a childlike faith, the mm-hmm. awe and the wonder. And, you know, those of us that work in the church world at the levels, it is easy to get cynical. It is easy mm-hmm. to get critical. It is easy to despair. Um, and you have to fight. I think when Paul said sometimes I press on um, and that, 
word press in the Greek is to exert a steady force against. I think for some of us, that exerting a steady force could be against cynicism or against, you know, some of those other things that you just go, I'm not, I'm not going to get like that. I'm going to stay mm-hmm. wide-eyed or mm-hmm. wonder, in love with Jesus, in love mm-hmm. with his church, um, and do the work that's necessary. That doesn't mean you're denying reality. It's just you do the work that's necessary to get there. So I don't feel like I have a lot of competing things and um, I'm quick to adjust where I need to. Like I'm going, my eldest is going to go to college and my youngest, that means they are very close. So I know already ahead of time that's going to deeply impact Sophia. So ahead of time, I'm already adjusting my schedule for the next year and I'm going to do a lot more things more locally based than globally, physically. I could do the other stuff on on tech, with technology because I want to be more present. Now, I think sometimes when you're just sensitive to even some natural things like that, season changes, life changes, you avoid a lot of things that could potentially then become problems um, just because you didn't think. So I think as long as you're not driven by selfish ambition and you're driven by godly ambition, you'll make the right choices. And then God didn't call us to this so that our lives, so that my marriage would disintegrate or that my relationship with my children would disintegrate. Um, He called us to flourish. And so I think there are ways to flourish uh, by staying firmly committed to Jesus and firmly uh, just dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. I think that's a brilliant definition of integrity. The the way that you've described the bicycle wheel is Mm. an integrated life. Mm. And you are a woman of integrity and um, mm. we're very grateful to you for, mm. for what you're doing and, and, and especially the way you live your life, because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Mm. And what you've just described is, is the, the most important foundation and, and explains why you have such an astonishing ministry around the world, because it's mm. deeply rooted in a life of integrity and mm. um, it's very powerful. Yeah. Uh, absolutely amazing christine that's a a treasure chest of of gems it really is i mean i need to listen to it all over again to unpack all the all the extraordinary things there's so much in there so much there's so much more we want to ask 20 sermons we've got at least thing is you speak fast christine that's (laughs) the good thing Uh, uh, we've got at least another five hours of questions we like to ask you but we uh, will let you go but we'll let you go but thank you so much we're so so grateful to you and thank you for your honesty and openness you're amazing. You're such an inspiration to us. We really yeah. are. We're so grateful to you for your friendship. Yeah. And for getting Pips up on the stage. <laughs> so grateful. Oh, come on. Yeah. That That's may go best. down in history as the best thing I did. <laughs> best thing you ever did for me was get her up there. So thankful. Uh... She still sometimes needs a bit of persuasion, but <laughs> at least I know I've got you as an ally. <laughs> just Very powerful me. ally. <laughs> you and the Holy Spirit. Come on, exactly. Thank you, Christine, for joining us this week. We just loved having you. Next up on the podcast, we have Isaac Borkway sitting down with Nikki. Isaac is best known as Governor B. He's a multi-award winning, record-breaking urban rap artist from London, and he works closely with Nikki as part of the team at HTB. I so look forward to listening in on this conversation. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or a previous one, would you share it with a friend? And feel free to leave a review on the platform you're tuning in from and tell us why this show is a part of your podcasting rhythm. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time for Nikki's conversation with Governor B. Bye for now.